You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Okay, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. For the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the qualifications for an elder or an overseer in the church. What I want to do at the outset is remind you that this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy is very relevant for us today. It's very relevant for a couple of reasons. First of all, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, that this letter, he's writing this so that some, everyone in the church may know how they are to conduct themselves in the household of God. Each person needs to know how they are to act in the church of God. This church and every Bible-believing church across this world belongs to Jesus. He purchased this church with his very own blood. As such, he and he alone is the one who calls the shots in the church. Uh, He is the one who determines what proper worship is and what proper worship is not. He is the one who determines the roles that are given to various people in the church. Who can serve in this role and who cannot serve in this role. He is the one who directs how we are to deal with false teachers. How we are to carry out church discipline. We, on our part, must simply listen, trust, and obey him and his commands. This past week I was uh, talking with a friend about the Old Testament prophecy of Amos. And we were talking about the northern kingdom because that's, that's who this prophecy was written to. And the northern kingdom of Israel had drastically departed from the word of God. They had drastically departed from the proper worship of God. They were doing their own thing. And yet when God came to them threatening judgment, they were dumbfounded. They were surprised thinking, Why? What did we do? What have we been doing wrong? For years and even decades, these people had slowly and sometimes even quickly declined in their worship of God. They had totally thrown out the law of God. They were characteristic of of the people in the time of Judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They were not seeking God. They were not saying, what does God say about this? How are we to properly worship him? And as a result... They were completely clueless as to why God would be judging them. So when we in this church speak harshly against false teachers in the church, when we suggest that sound doctrine really, really does matter, when we insist that there are certain people who can fulfill certain roles and other people who cannot fulfill those roles, When we list the qualifications of elders or leaders in the church, when we talk about how widows should be treated or how we should think about money, we must all take these things seriously or we may find ourselves in a similar situation of the people in Amos' day or even the people in Matthew chapter 7 where they're standing before Jesus in the final judgment and they say, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do what you told us to do or we thought that you told us to do? And Jesus will say those terrifying words, depart from me for I never knew you. Because of these reasons, everyone's ears 
today should be open. Everyone should be, as it were, on the edge of their seats. Because if you truly want to glorify God, then you must not only understand these things, you must also put them into practice. So we went through about half of the qualifications of an elder last week, and we'll finish them up uh, today. So let's read this passage that we have before us. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is the very word of God. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's look to him for prayer. Father, as we come into your presence, Lord, we pray that we would truly engage in worship today. We pray that you would give us ears to hear today and eyes to see I pray, God, that we would see exactly how relevant this passage is, that we would hold our leaders to a high standard, that we would pray for them, and that we ourselves, Lord, would meet these qualifications, Lord, that we would be faithful, and that we would never, ever bring reproach on the name of Jesus. Father, we pray that you would guide us today, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The general, full, the general qualifications that we mentioned last week of an elder or an overseer are really found in the phrase, the first phrase, an elder then must be above reproach, which means that there's nothing in his life that either those within the church or outside the church could grab him and say, you can't be doing this. You call yourself a leader, you call yourself a Christian, and this is how you act there will be sin in his life, no doubt, but there cannot be a sin or a pattern of sin such as brings reproach on the name of Christ and embarrasses his church. The general, the general statement of being above reproach is really specified in the remaining qualifications, namely that he must be sexually faithful to his wife, he must be respectable, he must be hospitable, ending with he must be well thought of by outsiders. We ended last week with the qualification that an elder must be able to teach. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to review uh, the qualifications that we talked about last time. I will encourage you to either visit the church website or our YouTube channel and you can view those sermons. The qualifications that we looked at last week were really presented in what's known as a positive form. And today, the first several that we're going to look at are, are presented in a negative form. Namely, he can not be a drunkard. He can not be violent. He can not be quarrelsome. He can not be a lover of money. And then Paul will finish with three qualifications with reasons attached to them. He must 
manage his own household well. Why? Because if he can't manage his own household well, then he can't manage the church. He must not be a recent convert. Why? Because if he is, then he might be puffed up and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He must be well thought of by outsiders. Why? So that he may not fall into disgrace. I want you to remember also that you, as I'm going through these qualifications, should be asking three main questions. The first is, do the current elders in this church meet these qualifications? Are they characteristic of them? The second question is, do those, do any men aspiring to the office of an elder in this church, uh, elder candidates, do they meet these characteristics, these qualifications? And the third question, you should direct it yourself and say, am I meeting these qualifications? Do these characterize my life? So let's jump right in. We'll go through the first three rather quickly and then spend the majority of our time on the last three. So the first one that we see today is that an elder must not be a drunkard. Alcohol is a huge, huge problem in our current culture. I think that Isaiah chapter 5 verse 22 really fits well with our current American culture in so many ways. Here's what Isaiah says there. He says this, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Our culture really does wear drunkenness as a badge of honor. During times like spring break or Mardi Gras or other celebrations, people will play drinking games to just see how wasted they can get, how drunk they can get. Uh, or how well someone can hold their alcohol. And as a result of this, they end up doing uh, crazy, ungodly things that people celebrate, they laugh at, and they think that this is cool. Many will wake up the next morning not knowing what happened to them uh, the night before. Uh, maybe they were sexual promiscu uh, 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 they were uh, promiscuous sexually, or, or maybe uh, they got into a fight. Or, or maybe they got behind the wheel of a car and caused an accident or actually killed someone. And they didn't know until they woke up the next day in the hospital or in the police station. Others will wake up the next day and their day will be completely ruined because they have a hangover. Still others will, will drink to the point where they become violent and they, they abuse their wife or their children. Still others will destroy their bodies. They will wipe out their livers because of their excessive drinking. At the very least, alcohol impairs your judgment. As we mentioned last week, an elder must not be controlled by alcohol because he must be vigilant in these times because these times are so deceptive. And if he is not vigilant, then he will be carried away by these deceptions and the church will be swept away as well. And so for these reasons and many more, an elder must not be controlled by alcohol. Now I know that there are some who advocate complete abstinence from alcohol. Um, and although this is a very, very good suggestion, I do not see it as a biblical mandate. But the bottom line is this, if a man is controlled by alcohol, he is not qualified to be a leader in God's church. 
The next qualification is that an elder must not be violent. This word literally means given to blows. Um, in other words, he cannot settle disputes with his fists, okay? Now, I've personally never seen a pastor or an elder in the church get into a, uh, a physical fist fight, uh, but I know it can and it has happened. And in fact, this past week, I even read uh, some articles uh, regarding uh, some pastors who are accused of domestic violence, uh, abusing physically uh, their wife or their children. That is an immediate, that is a disqualifier, okay? Is a disqualifier. Also, this word could be used figuratively, uh, referring to someone who can wound with his language. You do realize that your words can really, really hurt people. Proverbs 15 says, uh, 15.1 says this, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And Proverbs 12.18 says this, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So he must not be violent. But rather he must be gentle, which means lenient, yielding, unassertive. The elder must not insist on his own way in a violent way. Even if his rights are violated, even if he is publicly humiliated in an unjust manner, he does not take, he does not react with violence. Rather, he exhibits uh, the same attitude that the Lord Jesus exhibited as he was being crucified, as he was being mocked unjustly, and he called out for forgiveness for those who were doing this because they didn't know what they were doing. An elder is to be merciful. He is not to be looking out for his own interests, but for those of Jesus Christ. Therefore, to resort to, to, resort to blows would bring reproach on the name of Jesus and would embarrass his church. And this would be a clear violation of the purpose for his leadership. The next qualification of an elder is that he must not be quarrelsome, uh, meaning that he must be peaceful and reluctant to fight. This refers not so much to physical violence as to a quarrelsome uh, person, someone who is fighting with their words. Um, to have a contentious uh, person in leadership will result in disharmony and disunity, seriously hindering the effectiveness of the leadership team. This is a strong word uh, describing active and serious bickering. This quality stands in direct opposition to um, uh, Timothy's opponents who, whose lives were characterized um, by this quarreling uh, all the time, this quarrelsome attitude. Elsewhere in both Titus and uh, Timothy, uh, they're both warned uh, to stay away from quarrels over the law. And they're both warned to stay away from senseless controversies which lead to quarrels. This is a different uh, a difficult qualification uh, to measure because there is not saying that there cannot be disagreements within uh, the leadership. But at the same time, the elders must be able to discern what, um, is, what issue cuts to the core of Christianity and which issues do not cut to the core of Christianity. They must be able to discern what is worth fighting for and what should not be fought over. There are many churches or denominations that have divided over very, very crucial issues, very important issues, 
um, such as the reliability of the Bible, such as the deity of Jesus, such as the, uh, the atonement, did, did Jesus actually have to die, over sexual issues, uh, uh, should, uh, do we affirm homosexuality, should we ordain uh, homosexuals, these churches have split, people have left, and for good reason, because they should, because that cuts at the core. There should be arguments about those things, and they should be, um, th they should be strong arguments. And people, if they can't disagree, need to part. But churches have also been divided over much less important issues, such as the style of worship, the flow of worship, the various programs uh, in the church, or the various ministries, or even building projects in the church. The result is that some elders in the church start to develop a reputation uh, for being quarrelsome, uh, for always wanting to contradict others, and for always finding fault in something in the way that things are being done. And Paul is saying that this ought not to be the case. So we should not be quarrelsome. The next negative qualification uh, for an, old, uh, an elder or overseer is that he must not be a lover of money. He must not be in it for the money. Now, I want to be quick to say, according to 1 Timothy 5, those elders who labor hard at teaching uh, and preaching should be compensated for doing so. And Paul explicitly states this in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 14, where he says this, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So based on those verses, what does it mean to be a lover of money? Well, taking an extreme example at first, I don't think that it's very hard um, to see that many people are in it for the money. Uh, I think of those in the prosperity gospel uh, movement. They can tell me all day that they're not in it for the money, but when they stand up on the stage with their Armani suits and their <clears throat> extravagant jewelry uh, and their multi-million dollar homes, okay, plural, and their multi-million dollar jets, that tells me that they are in it for the money. They love being wealthy. They love what money uh, can bring to them. That's an extreme example, but even a pastor in a small church can be a lover of money, seeking to find his satisfaction in money rather than in Christ alone. I had a dear seminary professor who, when he was talking to us about pastoral care, he urged us, those sitting in the room, about a hundred of us, um, that when we were candidating for positions in various churches that we should never negotiate money. We should never negotiate money. But we should take whatever is offered because if we felt called to that church then, and we were trusting that that church had sought God and that this was what this church could afford, that we were just to accept that. Now, I don't want to list that as a hard and fast rule, but it is a, uh, a rule that I have even exercised in my own life and I have never um, negotiated a uh, salary for myself, no matter how low or how high it was. So an elder needs to know what the proper use of money is and what it can or cannot do. 
Money can buy things that are necessary and even things that can be enjoyed uh, by us in this life. But ultimately, money cannot buy happiness. Money cannot buy security. And so if that's what you're in it for, uh, the happiness or the security, um, then that is not a right motivation. From what I understand, uh, Jesus talked more about money than anyone else and Paul will actually close out this letter of 1 Timothy, which we'll see in a couple of months, with the issue of money and talking about how the love of money really is the, is the root of all sorts of evil that plunges people, not just leaders, but plunges people into ruin. For now, I'm going to move on to the last set of qualifications. There are three of them, and they all come with reasons as to why they're important. The first one is that an elder must manage his own household well. To manage means to preside over or to rule. The word well, he's got, he has to manage his own household well, carries with it the idea of being aesthetically beautiful or pleasing to the eyes. An elder must be one whose leadership in the home is not only intrinsically good, but is also visibly good to those who are looking from the outside in. This qualification is further clarified in the statement um, that he must do this with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. That word dignity uh, is a word that we've looked at before. Uh, its meaning uh, stands between someone who cares uh, about pleasing nobody and someone who cares, uh, who is endeavoring at all costs to please everybody. It's the ability not only to perform well one's duty as a citizen, but also to adhere to the highest principles and ideals of earth and heaven, thus drawing respect and approval from others. The elder will not manage or rule his home perfectly. No one can do that. But he must do it somewhere in between being a hammer and a pillow. He must rule his house with authority and with firmness. But he must also rule with gentleness, with mercy, with kindness, with grace, and with love. He is to keep his children submissive and obedient to his rules. Because he is not to provoke his children to anger, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, I believe that many of the rules that uh, an elder lays down in his house should be explained to his children. I think that he should say, hey, here is why I don't want you to hang out with this person. This person has a bad reputation or this person uh, is ungodly and they may lead you into sin. This is why I don't, I don't feel comfortable with you hanging out with this person. Um, here is, here is a, a reason. This is the reasons why I want to limit your TV viewing or your internet viewing or your phone use. Because there's a lot of dangerous stuff out there and it's a, it's a waste of time and there's other things that you could uh, be doing. Uh, here is why I want you to keep your room clean or here's why I want you to do this or that. Helping them to understand that these rules are there not to steal their fun but actually to maximize their joy uh, in this life. Now when Paul writes his letter to Titus, um, in Titus chapter 1, he lays forth similar qualifications. 
But he adds this interesting phrase in Titus chapter 1, verse 6. He says this, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers. His children are believers. Now the translation of this Greek word pistos here uh, as believers implies that the elder's children must be Christians. Now if this is the implication of the ESV translators, then I don't think it's the best rendering of this word. And here's why I say that. The primary, the primary argument for rendering it as believers, the word believers, uh, is that in the letters of Timothy and Titus, this word is almost always used regarding saving faith. Now, I am not trying to lower the standard for an elder, because as we've seen, the standard is very, very high. But I believe that if that is one of the standards, that that is an impossible standard to keep for two reasons. The first is that no father can guarantee the conversion of his own children. No father can guarantee the conversion of his own children. The Bible is very clear that salvation is of the Lord from start to finish. In other words, God and God alone saves. This is not something that can be forced on anyone, even your own children. Besides this, only God can know for sure if someone is saved or if someone is not saved. We cannot know for sure. Several years ago, I was in, at an event where John Piper was preaching, and I love John Piper. He has had such an influence on my life and thousands of other people's through his sermons and through his books. And I remember uh, as he got up to speak he had this somber look on his face and he just confessed and he, and he was lamenting the fact that one of his children was not following the Lord and he wasn't sure if they were a Christian. Now I ask you, does that disqualify him from being an elder or a pastor in the church? And I don't think it does. As a parent, uh, you could do almost everything right and your children may still not believe. They may be just going through the motions of Christianity for fear of punishment in the house or because that's all they've ever known to do. Right? This is all I've ever been taught to do. Why do I go to church as an adult? Because that's what I did as a kid. And they're just going through the motion. External behavior does not automatically mean internal transformation. A child may be completely submissive, affirming the Christian faith on the outside, but not actually be a Christian. This is why Paul is constantly warning, and Jesus is constantly warning about this. Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 13 says, examine yourselves to see if you're truly in the faith, which would mean that people could have been deceived as to thinking that they are. The point is that there is no definitive way of knowing who is a Christian and who is not. We can look at their fruit, but in the end, uh, anyone uh, can fake it. Therefore, I believe, and some may disagree with me, and that's fine, that a better rendering of this word uh, as believers in Titus 1, 6 would be that his children must be faithful. His children must be faithful because whereas a father cannot guarantee the conversion of his children, he can ordinarily ensure that they act in a faithful and respectable way. 
Now, I think that the rendering of this word as faithful is proven in these two texts of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. The whole of Titus chapter 1 verse 6 reads this. And his children are believers or are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Okay? Uh, so there, that characterizes what he means by faithful here. That they're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The other proof is that Paul does not list this qualification in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But only that the children must be well behaved. They must be submissive. The concern with these qualifications, as we've been saying all along, is the reputation of the church. If a man claims that he can lead the church and yet cannot lead his own household, then that will bring reproach on the name of Christ. It will damage his witness and people will be less likely to take him seriously. We actually see this in verse 5 of our text where it says this, if, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Leading a church is very serious business. And it is uh, the proving ground for leading the church is a man's own home. I'm reminded of the parable that Jesus told where he concluded by saying, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. I want to be quick to add that no elder can perfectly fulfill this qualification. There will be times when his children will be unruly, and even in a public way. They will set a bad example in front of others and maybe even embarrass the family. The elders, at that point, the elders and the church must decide at what point a man becomes disqualified. A church must be active in the life of her leaders. The next qualification that we come to is, I'm not sure needs much explanation because it seems just pretty straightforward and reasonable, and it's this. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He must not be a recent convert. And the reason that he must not be a recent convert is because he is in danger of thinking that he's all that. As a new believer, he is immature. He is untested. As such, he may not be able to handle this new position. He may begin to look down upon others and start to put more confidence in his own flesh. As a result, he becomes a primary target for Satan regarding pride. Another reason that I believe he should not be a recent convert, a reason that is not stated here, is that a, a new convert um, should not be put into this position because he has not had time to work out his own theology. Okay? Uh, he is to now instruct others, and yet he hasn't even been able to work out his own understanding of the Bible. He is trying to teach people how to run when he himself is just learning how to walk. So he needs to have time to work out his theology, what he believes and why he believes it. A third reason, once again not stated here, is because this man, if he's a recent convert, has not been tested or even proven to be a true Christian. 
As I mentioned before, no one can ever be sure who exactly is a Christian and uh, who is not. Only God knows. But we should test them. It's interesting to me that in the history of the church uh, many years ago, that a church would not even baptize someone or accept them into membership for several months or even years after they claimed to be a Christian because the church would look at them and say, hey, we're going to observe you over the next couple of weeks and months and see if you are actually a Christian before we actually baptize you or welcome you into the membership of the church. They wanted to ensure that these people were truly Christians. I, I think of a Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew chapter uh, 13. In verse 20 and 21, he's explaining one type of soil, the rocky ground. He says this, as for uh, what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Now, if you were to continue reading, you would see that Jesus says something similar of those on the thorny ground. But there he says that the cares of this world choke out. And the implication is that they were never really saved. I have seen people who have come to Christ and who are on fire for him only to fall away and never return. When I lived in St. Louis, I started to attend this church. And the church was absolutely just crazy about this new youth uh, pastor um, and his wife and, and and everyone was telling me you got to meet him you got to meet him this guy is great he's awesome you know he came out of a life of drugs and sexual promiscuity and all sorts of stuff and this guy's on fire and and he's leading the youth group and I, I went over to his house for dinner and there on his wall he had a uh, an, an ordination certificate that was given to him by the church now, I was struck by that for a couple of reasons. I'll admit there was a little bit of jealousy for me because I had grown up in the church. Uh, I had gone to a Christian school my whole life. Um, I knew doctrine. Um, I had even preached in my church in Michigan uh, on Sunday nights and even had taught in Sunday school and led the youth group. And I was never ordained. Now I was getting into seminary and I was in six years of diligent study and internship was ahead of me before I would even be considered for ordination and get that certificate on my wall. So I was taken aback by that. But the, also, the, the, the main reason that I didn't like it was because of this qualification here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. This young man was a new convert that the church said man you love the lord you're excited about that we're going to ordain you well sadly within six months um, of me knowing him of meeting him him and his wife left the church and fell away from the faith fell back into the same lifestyle that they were in before and to my knowledge they never returned the church should have never ordained him the church should have never put him in that position. They were complicit in bringing reproach on the name of Christ. That's just one example of why an elder must not be a recent convert. Finally, we come to the qualification, um, the last qualification, and that is this, that an elder must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. 
Now, the reason for this qualification has already been stated many times before. The gospel, as I said last week, the gospel is offensive. But those who are proclaiming the gospel should not do it in an offensive way. The unbelieving world must be able to look at the elders or the leaders in a church and conclude that, man, I don't, I don't agree with them, but they command respect. They command respect. If the conclusion of the community around me is that Jason is lazy, he's a drunkard, he's angry, he's selfish, then I am disqualified. I'm disqualified because they were, will never believe a word I say regarding the gospel. They will be thinking, oh yeah, come to Jesus, and I too can be lazy and a drunkard and selfish and just an overall jerk. The reputation of the church is at stake. As we close, I want to remind you that all of these character qualities can be faked. Okay? All of these character qualities can be faked. Almost everyone, I would say, is tempted at least one time in their life or probably several times in their life to put on a good face when you're in church, right? When others are watching, uh, we put on a better face. Um, in other words, we can all be guilty of playing the hypocrite in order to uh, seem better than we actually are. To that end, here is what I want to encourage you as a congregation to do regarding these qualifications that we've just looked at over the last three weeks. First, uh, as I mentioned before, I want you to ask, are these character qualities true of me? And talking you personally, are they evident in my own personal life? As I said before, most of these should be evident in a Christian's life, being respectable, being hospitable, being sexually uh, pure uh, and faithful, right? Having a good reputation within the church and outside of the church, okay? Um, so ask yourself these questions. Do I avoid excesses in alcohol or am I known as a drunk or someone who abuses drugs? Am I gentle or am I violent? Am I always fighting with people? Or am I nice? Do I love money? Or do I understand it in proper terms? Do I have a good reputation with my neighbors or my co-workers or my fellow students? Or would they say, you call yourself a Christian? That's how a Christian acts? So ask yourself those questions before you start to ask it of other people. Second urging that uh, application that I would uh, encourage you to consider is regarding the current elders and elder candidates in this church. Uh, and here is how you can encourage or keep us accountable. The first is to pray for us. And I would say pray often for us. Okay, I know that there are people in this church who are constantly telling me, I'm praying for you, and I'm thinking, thank you. Continue to do that, all right? Because um, the reputation of the church is at stake. We don't want to bring reproach on the name of Christ, so please 
Please pray. Pray that we would set a good example for the rest of the church and for the unbelieving community that we live in. Pray that we would lead our households well. Pray that we would not be lovers of money. That we would, not be, uh, that we would be gentle and not quarrelsome and not drunkards. So pray for us. Secondly, here's what I want to ask you, and this might be difficult for you. Ask us questions. Okay? You're thinking, no, no, it's not my place. No, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. No, ask us questions. Ask us questions such as, how are you doing spiritually? How is your prayer life? How is your study, your personal study of the Word of God? I know that you study uh, to, to preach or to teach, but how do you, do, you, do you study personally for your own soul? You know, are, are you getting proper rest? Are you eating properly? Ask us questions. Ask us questions like, are you free from the love of money? Are you trusting in money for your happiness? Ask us, how are you, how are you leading your own household right now? And can you give me examples so that I can even uh, employ those in my house as well? Ask us questions. Once again, I know that you're just like, no, 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 I don't feel comfortable doing that. But this is, this is your church. Actually, this is Jesus' church, right? And we need to make sure um, that the elders, the leaders, are holding to a high standard and setting an example for the rest of the people to follow. Now, once again, you know that we will not be perfect. And that's another reason why you should pray for us when you say, hey man, I'm struggling this week with this. You know? Good. I know how to pray for you regarding that. Finally, encourage us. Uh, give us words of affirmation where appropriate. Right? You just say, hey, I, I appreciate how you're leading. I, pre I know that it's very difficult and I appreciate that. I appreciate how you taught this or, or how you handled this. Give us words of affirmation um, where appropriate. And also give us words of admonition or correction where appropriate. Hey, I, I'm not, you know, casting stones, but I saw how you handle this, and I don't know if this was the best way. Um, we might be able to do this. You might have been able to do this a better way. As a member of this church, those are your responsibilities. Those are your responsibilities. Our prayer is that this church would be faithful to God, that we would be a light in a dark world to the glory of God and for the good of Galveston. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, these qualifications really do hit me right between the eyes. Lord, I am not perfect in any of them. And so I pray, God, that I would set a good example uh, to this church, both in my public life and in my private life, both when everyone is watching me and when nobody is watching me at all. I pray that I would be faithful to you, that I would hate sin and that I would love what is right, that I would be above reproach, that I would be sexually pure and faithful to my wife, that I would be sober-minded, that I would be respectable, that I would not be addicted to substances, that I would not be uh, quarrelsome, but that I would manage my own household well and that I would be well thought of by those in my neighborhood and those I come into contact with. Father, we pray for this church, strengthen this church, grow this church, uh, both numerically and in the faith, Lord, so that we can touch more people, so that we can reach more people 
uh, so that we can disciple more people. And we just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.